Hello, everybody. I think maybe we'll just start now and uh, people can join us later. So good afternoon. Um, thank you for joining us. And welcome to this panel discussion on the political crisis in Sri Lanka. My name is Shamara Vettimuni, and I'll be moderating the discussion today. I realize that the event's title is seemingly broad and therefore may be open to interpretation, but I'd like to clarify that what we're hoping to focus on are the events that stemmed from President Maithripala Sirisena's decision to appoint former President Mahindra Rajapaksa as Prime Minister on the 26th of October um, and discuss the events and consequences of such an appointment as well as the attempted dis dissolution of Parliament. So we will start off by hearing from our four, four panelists and then move on to Q&A. Um, our first speaker, Dr. Asanga Valikala, is a lecturer in public law at the School of Law, University of Edinburgh, and the director of the Edinburgh Center for Constitutional Law. He is also a research associate of the Institute of Commonwealth Studies, um, University of London, and research fellow of the Center for Policy Alternatives in Sri Lanka. Asanga has recently edited volumes on Sri Lanka's 19th Amendment to the Constitution, Content and Context, and Reforming Sri Lankan Presidentialism, Provenance, Problems and Prospects. Thank you, Asanga. Okay, thank you very much, Shamara. Thanks. Thank you very much for the <coughs> invitation. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, it's certainly more of a turnout that we can uh, ever hope to do in Edinburgh. Uh, <coughs> so I'm um, pleased that there is um, some such interest in, in what's going on. It's certainly a, a um, uh, a set of events which are, I think, of greater relevance mm -hmm. than uh, beyond Sri Lanka in, in, in many ways, about democratic backsliding, about um, <coughs> all of this. Um, I will assume some background knowledge on your part, as I don't have a lot of time to uh, get into the background, but if anything is unclear, I'd be very happy to, um, to elaborate <coughs> more um, during questions. Um, so the, the broad background to the events of 26th uh, October, the evening of 26th October when the crisis was triggered, uh, <coughs> the broad, broad background is the 2015 elections, the regime changing elections of 2015, uh, which brought to power the current president uh, and the purportedly dismissed uh, Prime Minister Rani Wickremesinghe, uh, defeating the Rajapaksa regime on a platform which was quite remarkable for its absolute focus on reform, on constitutional reform, uh, certain other promises made on post-war uh, dealing with the legacy of the war, uh, and so on. Um, and while um, the, re the, the change of January 2015 itself was quite remarkable, uh, given that uh, President Rajapaksa at that time was engaged in a, uh, in a Quite a serious attempt at, at dynastic politics and, and entrenchment of his uh, family and uh, uh, <coughs> nationalist uh, 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 coalition, uh, entrenching them within the, the, the institutions of the Sri Lankan state. So that project was um, uh, defeated uh, because the country was inspired by the, uh, this <coughs> idea of Yahapalane in Sinhalese, broadly translated as good governance. No one really knows what the exact content of it, including the ones who have used it as a political slogan. But the themes of reform and democratization and the restoration of the rule of law uh, and absolutely um, the, either the abolition or at least the very substantial cutting back of the powers of our hyper-presidential office that we have were certainly things that inspired the electorate clearly in 2015. 
And in pursuit of that uh, of that reform mandate, um, that's the, the record of the government since then has not been especially very good. Um, even though the, in the initial sort of flush of victory, uh, the uh, constitutional amendment, the 19th amendment to the constitution was pushed through. And this crisis actually is the first occasion on which we are all perhaps learning about uh, you know, how quite far-reaching that amendment actually was. Um, <clears throat> its primary purpose were twofold. First was, of course, a, a very substantial reduction uh, of the powers of the executive president uh, through a strengthening uh, of parliament uh, via the strengthening of uh, the prime minister and the cabinet. Right? So we have a classic semi-presidential system in which there is a president who is directly elected by the country as a whole and who shares the exercise of executive power uh, with a prime minister and cabinet that is chosen from within parliament uh, and who are responsible to and must enjoy the confidence of parliament. Um, so in, device, in, in, in strengthening the, the, the semi-presidential characteristics of, of the 1978 constitution, uh, the 19th Amendment um, uh, cut back um, on the scope uh, for unilateral action uh, by the executive president in, in quite substantial ways, uh, as we are beginning to realize now. Even though it was not felt to go um, that very far when it was actually done in 2015, but the, the classic thing about semi-presidential, the design of semi-presidential executives, of course, is that very often people who don't like each other very much have to work together. Um, and in a political culture like Sri Lanka's, uh, even though the, the, these two individuals who were prime minister and, and the president had co collaborated in um, uh, building a coalition to win an election in 2015, the relationship clearly started deteriorating very badly. And we saw this happening um, uh, from about 2017 onwards uh, <clears throat> until the crisis in which uh, clearly, especially for the president, uh, the, the proposition of working together with Prime Minister Vikramasinghe had become completely unbearable. Um, that, so there are a whole series of events that led up uh, to this, which I'm not going to go into <coughs> in detail at all. But the crisis, um, as we are experiencing it right now, was triggered by three different legal acts, three of uh, two of which are particularly important. The first was on the evening of um, uh, fr Friday the 26th October, uh, the, the, the president um, issued an announcement saying that he has dismissed uh, Prime Minister Vikram Singha and appointed a new prime minister and new cabinet. And the new prime, prime minister, of course, was former president uh, Mahindra Rajapaksa, uh, who uh, is currently a member of parliament, so he is entitled to be appointed under the correct circumstances, except that this was not that what it was. Um, <coughs> the president also prorogued parliament, that is to say suspended parliament, um, initially for a period of two weeks, um, and then followed up on the 9th of November uh, with a purported dissolution of parliament. Uh, so these are the three legal, or the, 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 the two key legal acts are the, the purported dismissal of, the, of Prime Minister Vikram Singha, and then the dissolution of parliament, purported again, um, which are the, legally speaking, constitutionally speaking, which are the heart of the crisis today. Uh, my views, I suppose, for those of you uh, who know that, are quite well known. 
Uh, I think both are um, uh, completely against the law. Uh, I, I think it is unconstitutional, uh, both acts. Uh, but, and it was clear that I think what they tried to do was this. Um, the, 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 the first element of their strategy certainly worked in the sense that we were all taken by absolute surprise. When it happened on Friday, no one expected it. It came from absolutely nowhere. Um, <clears throat> so I think the idea was that uh, the element of surprise coupled with the return of the strongman narrative with President Rajapaksa back in power, and they thought that probably the weekend would have been sufficient uh, to uh, induce a, a sufficient number of crossovers uh, in order to constitute a new majority in parliament in favor of the of, of uh, prime minister, purported prime minister Rajapaksa's uh, government. Except that that did not happen, uh, which is quite a remarkable thing. And I'll say a little bit towards the end about that. Uh, it's one of going to be, I think, one of the great social science questions of our time. Yeah. So. Um, so the purported dismissal of uh, President Rajapaksa is illegal and un unconstitutional because according to my view, certainly, it's quite clear in the Constitution, uh, after the uh, 19th Amendment, the changes made by the 19th Amendment, uh, the President no longer has the unilateral power to dismiss the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister is somebody who must uh, command the confidence of Parliament. That usually means uh, 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 enjoying uh, the support of a majority of members of Parliament. Uh, and this is um, uh, clearly, uh, Adam, uh, it's, it's been very clear that it is Prime Minister, Minister uh, Ranil Vikramasinghe who enjoys the support of a majority of members of parliament, not uh, Mahindra Rajapaksa, and consequently the, the inability to form uh, this majority led to, as I said, to a dissolution, purported dissolution of parliament, once again unconstitutionally, because again, after the 19th Amendment, uh, the presidential power or the dissolution of parliament has been very severely cut back. He, in other words, cannot dissolve parliament uh, in the first four and a half years of its five-year term. So the removal of these two key powers from the executive presidency was something that was done by the 19th Amendment, which clearly either the president uh, did not understand but, but what, what his own government had done, uh, or he was very badly advised. But remarkably, just to end, um, it has been a couple of things. First is the pushback. Uh, there, have, there has been a lot of speculation about the kinds of sums that have been offered to individual members of parliament to cross over, et cetera, quite very large amounts of money, even in a relatively corrupt political culture. Uh, but in the face of all of that, the, the, the majority in favor of Ranil Vikram Singer has held uh, incredible. It's not only a one party, but all, uh, you know, a number of parties in the United National Front, which is a coalition. A loose coalition holding, um, that majority holding is a really remarkable thing. Secondly has been the pushback from the courts. There, has, there, are, there, there are two pieces of, two, two avenues of litigation currently happening as we speak. Um, the, 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 the first is in the Supreme Court, uh, asking it to determine the legality of the dissolution of parliament, and that's happening as we speak. Um, and a second uh, action that is taking place in the Court of Appeal by the 122 members of parliament who constitute Ranil Vikramasinghe's majority, asking the court um, to determine um, the legality uh, of the new government. Um, essentially asking them to show what, on what legal uh, basis that this new government has been constituted. And uh, again, that is being talked about. Uh, the, the, the both courts have issued interim orders which give, to my mind, some indication of where they might go uh, 
in terms of their substantive determinations, and that is in favor of the interpretation that people like I have supported, which is to say that both actions are unconstitutional. Thank you so much, Asanga. Um, next, we have uh, Dr. Rajesh Venugopal, who is Assistant Professor at the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He researches and writes on the political economy of conflict and nationalism in South Asia, particularly in Sri Lanka. He has recently published a monograph, Nationalism, Development and Ethnic Conflict in Sri Lanka, with the Cambridge University Press. In Sri Lanka, he is a fellow of Center for Poverty Analysis and an advisor at Verite Research. Thank you, Rajesh. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Shamara, for inviting me. Thank you to the Center for South Asia, sorry, the Contemporary South Asia Studies Program, um, my co-panelist, Kate, for organizing this event. <coughs> um, following on from what Asanga said, let me, I think uh, I, I will try not to repeat um, any of the material. I think that the events of the last five to six weeks in Sri Lanka since the 26th of October are really extraordinary. And extraordinary, unusual events like this are on the one hand entertaining political spectacles, but on the other hand they are also expensive, they disrupt life, they have put a lot of people into limbo, they make the system, the government institutions, the people critically depend on for all kinds of things less functional, less dependable, less predictable, and more ambiguous. But in addition to the spectacle of politics and the difficulties, breakdown is also analytically something very, um, very revealing in that sense. It, it serves the purpose of providing a lens. It, it sort of lifts the veil, as it were, over many things that are going on that you don't quite see, that we would otherwise not really have insight into. So what has happened in the last few weeks is we have gained some insights, and I'm going to try to discuss some of those. Now, I was initially tempted to discuss amongst one of the insights a gentleman by the name of Vasanta Senanayake, an incredible parliamentarian of Sri Lanka whose acrobatics have um, given rise to new adjectives and new verbs in the English language. To Vasanta, or he's such a Vasanta. <laughs> Something that I think we will not forget. But anyway, let me not dwell on that, and but matters more serious. Firstly, and I think very interestingly, uh, it reveals that political memory is actually very short amongst electorates. People forget what they voted for four years ago, or more importantly, what they voted against four years ago. Uh, in 2019, there will be elections in Sri Lanka, and it was, a month ago, looking entirely possible that the frustrations with the Yahpangne agenda, with the Ranul Vikramasinghe government, the growing irrelevance of President Maitripala Sirisena in electoral terms, would all have contributed towards a comfortable return of the Rajapaksa family to power in some shape. So this coup has sort of served to remind people and give them a sudden memory jolt, as it were, of what life was like for the nine years of the Rajapaksa period and what one could perhaps look forward to if they come back. This is sort of the, the compressed five-week version of what people would have had to go through for five years. <coughs> and what it shows, the first thing, is a desperate 
reckless, self-destructive impatience and hunger for power without thought of the consequences. Because if only the Rajapaksas had waited another year, I mean, given the, the local government election results that happened earlier this year, they were on their way back to power legally, fair and square. <coughs> but instead, they risked everything, everything for a few extra months. And in the time, in the last few weeks, people in Sri Lanka have seen the return of what it was like. They've seen a return of government as family business. The brothers, the son, the cousins, the extended clan. Not to mention the thugs, the racist provocateurs, the fellow travelers who have been emboldened and who have crept out of the woodwork. We've seen a brazen disregard for constitutional niceties and institutions. Constitutions can be creatively reinterpreted every day according to the whims of what end it serves. And there's a cultivation of a particular kind of majoritarian nationalism that has been barely concealed. It's still suppressed, but we can see it coming. And there is a, an attempt to reverse institutional mechanisms for accountability with regards to corruption, with regards to the abuse of power and violence. And there is a confidence. There's a distinct confidence given to elements within the security services who want to return to the carte blanche of the past, the impunity, the immunity of the past. And one really interesting and very telling case is the case that briefly in the news few, uh, two weeks ago of Nishanta Silva, the investigating officer who the president tried to get transferred, uh, which was reversed. And you know, among the further details that come out, just illustrative of what uh, the preview of what one could see, uh, someone has outed the fact that this investigating officer actually targeted because his last name is not just is not really Silva; it's Kandapa. Uh, that is his father is Tamil, or rather Kalambachetti, probably. So this is not to say that all of these elements of violence, of corruption, of reversal of institutional mechanisms. Um, are a monopoly of that side of the political fence. But their brief return has reminded everyone of just how corrupt, how violent, how unaccountable, how chauvinist, how destructive that past was. And for all of the disappointments of the last four years, how far Sri Lanka has come since January 2015. Secondly, and on a very different note, I think I've been reminded about how disarticulated the politics of the North has been from the high politics that we are witnessing, the drama that we're seeing. I'm actually grateful to my fellow panelist, Gihan Gwantelko, for sort of putting that idea into my mind a few days ago. So now the minorities have not necessarily been absent from this uh, political theater of Colombo in the last few weeks. In fact, the return of Rajapaksa has caused a particular, particularly acute kind of anxiety, uh, both amongst Tamils and Muslims. And Muslim and Tamil parties have played a very important role in the last few weeks. But there's still been a very clear incongruence evident between the politics of this crisis, you know, which is artificial and which is concentrated at the apex of power, and the very different substantial issues that exist outside of that bubble in the real world. And I'm not saying that the resolution of this crisis is immaterial to those real world problems. But there are other pressing problems that people face in Sri Lanka that have been marginalized or postponed or become invisible or irrelevant and just don't feature in the front pages. And to some extent, that is the north-south gap. Uh, it has to do with 
north is people talk about land, vigils, rehabilitation, employment, criminal gangs, the safety of women, or even more complex issues such as memorialization. And some very important things happened in the last week. That just doesn't figure in the discourse of this crisis, its origins, and its resolution. And the separation of that drama in Colombo and its irrelevance to the real politics of the ground, not just in the north, but in the rest of the country, is something to dwell on. Thirdly, this coup has sharply focused minds on the undemocratic, unaccountable powers of the executive presidency, many of which have actually been taken away, as Asanga has rightly pointed out, by the 19th Amendment. But it continues to show how just one capricious man, who history has accidentally elevated to the post of the presidency, can take it upon himself, unilaterally, to plunge the country into a deep and destructive political crisis, one which he actually does not have the power to do. Um, and if you will allow me, in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon, famously, Marx talks about you know, the first time as tragedy and the second time as farce. Uh, interestingly, that's also a reflection on a coup, uh, the coup of 1851 by Louis Napoleon, by an out-of-control executive president who then fought a war against parliament and got the constitution changed to allow him to remain in power for the next 10 years. But in that book, Marx describes a grotesque and mediocre personality who history has accidentally put in the center stage as president. I've made even a Sangha giggle, who is probably the most <laughs> anti-Marxist person I know. But that's an interesting aside. The president of Sri Lanka needs to be held to account. And more importantly, the presidency itself is in need of attention. And this might be the political moment when people realize even in the party that brought it into exi existence, just how problematic it is and how it, once and for all, needs to be done away with. Fourthly, there's a lot to be said here about the power of the free media and about social media. Social media has gained notoriety in Sri Lanka. Unregulated social media has been very heavily criticized, particularly in the case where it has been found to lead to violence, in, in the case of Digana or in Alutgama. Uh, but in this case, that infamous chili powder attack in parliament was actually live broadcast on Facebook by another parliamentarian sitting there with his phone. And that is very important in many ways. We were denied that. We didn't have that a few years ago even. We didn't even have that 10 years ago. And fifthly, and finally, I think this coup has revealed a lot about Sri Lanka's institutions, about the way they work, what people are willing to tolerate. And what it says is to some extent, extent and I say this with all due caution, encouraging. As much as the January 2015 transfer of power in Rajapaksa lost power and apparently conceded defeat, uh, he did so only after key state officials refused to go along with his plan to find a way out, to annul the elections and to just plow his way through. And whether those officials acted out of a sense of dislike for Rajapaksa because of their deeper sense of duty or because they were just afraid that they were not going to be on the winning side of history is actually immaterial. The damage that would have happened if the election results of January 2015 had been annulled and he had continued in part would have been worse than the damage that is being done with the present. And similarly, Sri Lanka's institutions have come back to life slowly. A rule-based system has slowly resisted the coup, and people in Sri Lanka have shown, people perhaps more than institutions, that they will not tolerate an illegal seizure of power. And I was thinking of other coups recently, the 1999 coup in Pakistan. It happened partly because of public apathy 
People didn't really oppose that coup. The 2013 coup in Egypt against Morsi, many people, including the secular modern intelligentsia, did not oppose it because they preferred a cruel secular despot to a democratically elected Islamist. Think of the 2016 attempted coup in Turkey. The opposite happened. In order for a coup to succeed, it needs a few critical ingredients. It needs stealth and speed. It needs domination of key communication and ministries. It needs to quickly achieve domination. And for a constitutional coup, you also need a lot of money. But one thing is that it must enjoy legitimacy. It must not be actively opposed. And that was the fatal miscalculation here of the coup plotters in Sri Lanka. And it's been a revelation to many people that people's participation in politics is not just about elections. It's about consent, and it's about withholding legitimacy. And I think that realization of what has happened may be one of the most important political uh, legacies of this episode when it eventually plays out and comes to a conclusion. Thanks. Thank you very much, Rajesh, for those interventions. Um, our next speaker, Gehan Gunatilaka, is an attorney at law and a doctoral student in law at the University of Oxford. He's also a researcher, a researcher at the Bonavero Institute for Human Rights. While in Sri Lanka, he was a research director at Verite Research, a think tank based in Colombo, and is an advisor, or was an advisor, to the former foreign ministry on human rights treaty compliance. Thanks, Gehan. Thank you, Shamara, and thanks, Kate, for hosting this event. Um, I think Asanga and Rajesh have covered a lot of ground in terms of laying out the groundwork and, and explaining the context of the, the crisis. What I'm going to try and do, uh, to hopefully complement what they've already said, uh, is make a few observations about what we can learn from this crisis, what we can take forward into a, to hopefully a post-crisis period. I'm going to frame my observations around two, what I'm going to call sources, <clears throat> sources of political power and sources of information. And I think this crisis has taught us about these sources and how we should respond to these sources, uh, given what has taken place since the uh, 26th of October. When you think about sources of political power, uh, at least since the 1978 constitution, Asang will agree with me, uh, we've thought of this monster the executive president, uh, all-encompassing institution that really wields enormous amount of power. And prior to 2015, it would have been very simple for the president to have removed the prime minister and dissolved parliament. In fact, it's been done before. But in 2015, after the government changed, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution was introduced, and that complicated matters. The 19th Amendment complicates political power, the sources of political power in Sri Lanka. Asang has already spoken a little bit about how it complicates the relationship between the president and other actors within what we can call the executive. But apart from that, the 19th Amendment also introduced certain appointment procedures that ensured some semblance of independence amongst institutions like the judiciary. Um, the police, the bureaucracy. And in this crisis, we've seen a quiet resistance to executive will emanating from these institutions. Now, I don't need to speak much about the, the work of the courts <coughs> in stemming the tide, in stemming the flow of this, this crisis. The Supreme Court issued an absolutely crucial interim injunction, uh, which 
stayed the dissolution of parliament, and it really was a turning point in this crisis. And just a couple of days ago, the Court of Appeal uh, also issued an interim uh, order, um, again, staying the actions of functioning of the purported Prime Minister, uh, Mahinda Rajapaksa, and his cabinet. Absolutely crucial. And unthinkable, I would say. Uh, and I don't think I'm being too controversial in saying it was unthinkable in the pre-2015 era. Now, we also have, and I think Rajesh touched on this, we also have institutions like the police, which has been completely under the control of the executive for many, many years, quietly resisting decisions to transfer officers that were in charge of absolutely crucial investigations into anti-corruption cases and emblematic cases, uh, dealing with accountability during the war, accountability in the, the immediate aftermath of the war. Now, we would not have encountered that kind of resistance had it not been for the complicating device that we now call the 19th Amendment to the Constitution. Now, what we learn from that, I'll, I'll come back to that, but I, I do think it's really highlighted and amplified how important it is to separate power when there is such an appetite to abuse it. I'm going to come back to that point uh, after I discuss another source. I think, again, Rajesh has already spoken about the importance of social media, but I want to frame it in terms of how, how important it's been in terms of a longer conversation that I've been part of in Sri Lanka in terms of the question of whether we should be regulating social media and alternative media in light of the fact that there's a lot of disinformation, hate speech, propaganda being disseminated through this channel. And I think around 2016, late 2016 and early 2017, there was quite a push to regulate this space because it was seen as a space that was extremely dangerous, a space that could produce uh, the types of incitement that <clears throat> could drive people to go out and, and harm each other, uh, particularly anti-minority, anti-Muslim propaganda was being um, uh, disseminated through these channels that really did lead to harm. And, and I think it wouldn't be controversial to say that some of this uh, incitement uh, that took place online is directly connected to what took place in, in, in March 2018 in Digana and uh, other parts of the Kandy district. So there was a, a legitimate call to, to regulate this space. And this call came from, naturally came from sources within the state, but also from certain actors within civil society. I think global voices looking at trends globally were also um, uh, invited to comment, and, and many said that it's important to, to find some balance. But the agenda lost a little bit of traction because some actors also were deeply suspicious of that agenda. And I think rightly so. Because in retrospect, I think a regulated social media space would have made uh, the crisis uh, you know, turn out very differently. Uh, and I think I w I'm glad that I was quite skeptical at that point, and I continue to be skeptical about uh, regulating social media, because I think the central agenda behind regulation of that space is controlling the narrative and controlling the sources of information. Um, and I think this happens particularly in places like Sri Lanka where the private media, uh, the mainstream, let's call it, uh, has learnt or has sort of understood how to behave 
due to many, many years of repression. So this learnt behavior is actually very similar to the sort of self-censorship that you would get in very oppressive mm -hmm. regimes. And I think in that context, alternative spaces where citizens can directly amplify their voices become absolutely crucial. And I think the crisis has taught us the importance of safeguarding those spaces. Because if not for social media, we would not have been able to organize in the way we did, uh, where citizens actually organized and, and protested, voiced their opinion, voiced their criticism, almost in real time. And then the incident about the chili, chili, chili powder mixed water, I mean, that, that was extremely powerful. It, it really created an outrage uh, amongst the public as to what was going on in parliament. That would not have been possible. And I also want to say that journalists, and these are established journalists, like people like Azam Amin, they use social media to actually directly <coughs> convey information, which in turn emboldens mainstream media to start publishing more critical reports, uh, things that the, uh, the state may not approve of, or the powers that be may not approve of, because there is this critical mass that is created. So in a sense, we've learned some, something important about how democracies ought to work, and particularly dem democracies like Sri Lanka. And I think going forward into hopefully what I hope to, to see a post-crisis era, we have to use these lessons in terms of how to reorganize ourselves. So in terms of separation of power, I would be very skeptical and, and cautious about replacing the executive presidency with an overmighty parliament that could subsume the judiciary and subsume an executive. We need to maintain, in some way, this balance between competing powerhouses. And that's the only way we en ensure a separation of power where concentration is not, uh, not possible. So we need to safeguard the independence of the judiciary. And doing so will require us to be cautious even within a parliamentary system. We need to be very skeptical even if, for example, the UMP was to come into power again completely and, and then say we need to regulate social media. We need to be skeptical about that as well because in a sense, any state actor that comes to the helm will be looking to control the narrative and control and, and, and concentrate sources of information. So in, in a sense, we need to be skeptical about an agenda of that nature even in a post-crisis era. So, so I think the, the most important lessons that I could draw from this crisis is that we need to separate powers uh, to the greatest extent possible, and we need to diffuse our sources of information to the greatest extent possible. Thanks. Thank you so much, Kehan, for the, the framing of those two key lessons.